CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Atlanta has one of the highest eviction rates in the country, third in the nation according to Apartment List, with nearly 6% rise in evictions between 2015 and 2017. Earlier this month, we spoke with Brooke Gladstone about a reporting series NPR's on the media created with the Eviction Lab at Princeton. Our conversation on the series, called The Scarlet E, Unmasking America's Eviction Crisis, received a lot of feedback from people like Leonard Henry, a Georgia landlord who says his property was extensively damaged by a family he rented to. He wrote, After six months and $10,000 out of pocket, I eventually restored the damage. To add insult to the injury, the family moved just around the corner. I can't sue because they have no assets, and they never ended up with an arrest or fine for the damage they did to my house. Although Brooke did give examples of landlords working to end the cycle, some of you thought building owners and managers were painted as villains. Well, we asked Margie Stagmeyer, president of TI Asset Management, which owns and rents apartments in the Atlanta metro area, for some perspective from the landlord. And Margie Stagmeyer joins me now in the studio. Welcome. Good morning. Okay, so American renters endure nearly a million evictions a year. On the media and the eviction lab looked at systemic sources, cost of living versus wages, lack of affordable housing, credit, how it's approved, but mostly a system that allows property owners to be greedy. Uh, Almost painted in the series, short of mustache troiling, but still greedy. What do you think as a property owner? I think that being a landlord is very difficult. Um, Think of a 250-unit apartment community you have about a thousand people, thousand to twelve hundred people every day coming in and out of that apartment community. It's it's a tough business. And I would say the vast majority of tenants that we deal with are very good community stewards of our properties, but you do have those cases of extreme damage, which tends to get all the, the media attention. Well well you are president of TI management, owning apartments at a complex in Clarkston known as Willow Branch. How many evictions have you had in the past year? I've had no evictions. And actually, I've had no evictions in three years. Well, what's working for you that is not working for others? So what we do in that particular property is we've decided to keep rents affordable. We scale it to the demographics around us. So our rents there average about $725 a month, and that's an average between one, two, and three bedrooms. So we intentionally keep our rents affordable for families that make between 10 and $12 an hour, which is the demographics for this property. Well, the argument is made that you can't run a business if you're keeping the housing that low. How do you afford it, and how are, are you making a profit? I think we do a very good job of underwriting deals, and we have a great loan, a great lender. And, you know, our, our tenants have, that particular property has become a community, so our tenants tend to take actually pretty good care and keep our expenses down. Okay. So how about when you need to increase rents, however? How can you do that? You said smaller rent increases. Correct. What, so how, how can you do it legally? Well, legally, you can increase your rents as much as you want. But what we do is, again, we look at the demographics around us in that particular property. Last year, actually, I did not have a rent increase. Our water went up, and so I went back to the tenants, and we asked them if they would work with us to reduce water, and they did. So we did not do a rent increase last year. But unfortunately, this year we are doing a rent increase because our expenses have gone up, particularly property taxes and insurance. So we're going to increase about 20 to $30 a month. 
How about in the cases of damages? As we heard, Leonard Henry felt that he had no recourse for expensive damages to his property. What does the law in Georgia say about recouping damages? All you can do is go through the court process and get a, a damages claim and put it on their credit report. Have you ever encountered that? Have you had to go to court? Oh, of course. Yeah. What percentage of your renters generally cause that level of damage? I would say less than 1%. Okay. So how? But what about when somebody does have to be evicted? How long do tenants have to move out after eviction? Well, typically it's five to eight days once the judge rules in favor. That's a pretty quick turnaround. But once the judge rules in favor, so you're assuming that we're assuming that there's a court process going on at that point. Correct. And it can take probably three to four months to actually get the tenant evicted. And I would say 95% of the time, the tenant does not pay rent during this time frame. While they're going through the eviction Correct. process. So you're losing that rent cost Correct. as well. Here's a bit of another episode from the Scarlet E series. This is featuring a landlord named Barb Getty. If someone is really behind in their rent and they realize it's not going to get better, I'll either say, this is Tuesday, if you can be out by Sunday and leave the place clean and empty, I won't file eviction on you. Or I'll offer them $100 if they leave it clean and empty. And that's also pretty effective. What do you do, Margie, when somebody cannot pay their rent? Well, we start the process. Um, We first try to work it out with the tenant. You know, we bring them into the office, find out what's going on. Sometimes we have access to programs that will help them pay their rent and we'll introduce them. Like social programs or state or local programs? There's nonprofits out there. For example, in Atlanta, there's the Giving Kitchen that basically provides supports for restaurant workers. You know, and there's churches, there's other nonprofits that will help tenant with their bills. What's interesting to me is the vast majority of tenants that are in eviction are hardworking families. I mean, they work jobs, but they've had their hours reduced. Um, They've had some member of their family laid off. They have a medical bill. So a lot of times they're good, hard-working tenants. And so we try to work with these families. Well, so that's a decision that you're making, a philosophy and a way of conducting your business. I mean, a lot of people say, like, I can't run a business like this. you got to pay rent or you can't. So how do you make that decision? Which people do you decide to work with? We try to work with all of them. Yeah. And all of them, if they try to work with us. So, you know, it's it's a opportunity for us to work with the tenants and for the tenants to try to explain to us what's going on. Well, let's hear a little bit more from the series that we, we spoke with Brooke about uh, the On the Media series, The Scarlet E, why they named the series that. Well, we call it The Scarlet E because one thing we found over and over again is that if you have an eviction on your record for whatever reason, the possibility of finding another landlord grows vanishingly small. And there have been people who have gone to 80, 90, until the point where they are so worn down with rejections, they'll take whatever they get. You're nodding here, Margie. Mm -hmm. So how does previous eviction history affect your decision to rent to new applicants? Well, absolutely. We look at it. And I can tell you it's pandemic. You know, we'll get tenants that will submit applications, and they've had three and four evictions. And, you know, do you take a risk with that tenant or not? Sometimes we may take a risk with them, but they have to put up additional security deposit. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other things that you consider with an applicant? Well, we look at their income. We look at their credit history. We look at their, if they've had any criminal activity in their record. Um, We look at things like that. Are you liable as a landlord if criminal activity is going on in one of your properties? 
that's a tough question. I mean, we have to do market standards as far as security. Right. So in a way, yes, if there's an extreme and we were negligent, yes. So credit scores is a, is a tricky thing. Uh, there was a comment on Twitter that uh, accused me of agreeing that it's sheer racism that's behind this, although anybody would be welcome to go back and listen to the interview and hear me challenge Brooke on that. But one commenter did say, this is based solely on credit. It has nothing to do with racism. Do you agree with that? Not necessarily. Why not? Because, I well, first off, most of our properties, it's a very diverse audience. Um I mean, we work with everyone. We don't care what your race is. For us, it's just an income number. Mm. Margie Stagmeyer is with me. She's president of TI Asset Management. And we're talking about eviction rates and how they affect landlords. Uh, she's a property owner with multiple units. Well, of course, Atlanta rents have been skyrocketing in recent years. Gentrification has been an ongoing problem with long-term residents unable to afford, afford increased property taxes or rent. How what would the law suggest? How do you, as somebody who, you know, wants to keep a community intact, feels like that's an important value, how do you make those kind of decisions? As far as rent increases? Yes. Again, we look at the demographics around us. Um, our, our particular model focuses on elementary schools, so we like to buy blighted properties near low-performing schools and keep our rents affordable so the families can live there long-term and raise their children and stay in the same school. So we're very sensitive about rent increases. What we look at is once our expenses increase, that's more of a factor of how we determine rent increases mm -hmm. than just arbitrarily saying, well, our neighbor's charging $50 more a month, so we're going to raise our rents $50. We don't really care what our neighbors are charging. You talked about a couple of the cases where, you know, people might be losing wages at work or losing hours. There's a big argument going on throughout the country about creating a living wage so that people can afford their rents. Wages have not gone up in, uh, uh, parallel with costs of living. So are you seeing more and more people having trouble with their rents? Yes. Yeah. Of course. In the last couple of years. I tell you, the other thing that's not really discussed, too, is technology has kind of redistributed how we spend our, our incomes. Technology accounts now for probably about 15% of our income, and that's never really discussed in the media either. You now have to have a cell phone. You know, you have to have that laptop. And not only have, have our incomes not gone up, but we've had more expenses basically to make us competitive. Mm -hmm. And I imagine everybody has Wi-Fi. Does everyone pay for Wi-Fi independently inside of your units? Yes. Okay. Any, are there any legally acceptable reasons for failure to pay rent? No. You know, not that I've ever seen. So what if they were to say, well, you didn't fix my water or, you know, my water pressure is not working or, you know, I have mildew or something like that? Is there a cause do they have legal costs? I, I think judges, and it, it varies county by county, but I think judges will look and, and sometimes consider things like that. But usually it's, it's you have to pay your rent. Well, the legal process allows renters options to appeal evictions, as we noted. But what on the media and the eviction lab tracked were extrajudicial, those that didn't go through the process. Do most of your cases for evictions end up in the courts? Yes. Yeah, they do. So because you, at this point, we've exhausted all efforts to try to work it out with them. Now, we did receive some feedback on our Facebook group also from a listener who is a landlord. Glenn Ashmore and Macon wrote, the last thing I want to have to do is evict someone. Around here, a vacant unit would be stripped of all wiring and plumbing within 48 hours. So from your perspective, what is the cost of eviction? 
Well, it depends on the condition of the unit, but probably around 2000 to $3,000 a unit. So can you normally turn something around if somebody vacates an apartment? You have to repaint. You have to Correct. redo. Correct. So that costs you money, obviously. Correct. And then you've had three to four months of downtime. So what are the next steps for a tenant following an eviction? I would try to work it out with their landlord. And I like the idea of, of you know, saying, well, we'll leave peacefully and give you your unit back rather than it taking three to four months. If you don't put the eviction on my record. Well, so, you know, obviously this this fires up a lot of people. There's this idea that there's tenants versus landlords. There are two different sides. But what is it, Margie, that made you decide that you wanted to do it differently? And, and how has that affected the way you do business? I've realized the unique role that a landlord pay, plays in a community. As I said earlier, you know, some of your properties may have 1,000 to 2,000 people living there. I think landlords need to be sensitive about the um, social impact of when they evict tenants or that they have in the role of the community at large. So, for example, if a, ten- if a landlord raises their rents 50 or or $100 a month, you can completely destabilize the local school because you'll have pretty much all your tenants move out. They'll take all their children out of the school, and that's what causes schools to fail. It's high transiency rates. So once I understood that concept, we started to try to do apartment communities or purchase apartment communities with more of a social model where we looked at the community at large, including the elementary school. Margie Stagmar, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Margie is president of TI Asset Management. A lot of comments that we got. Uh, We also aired a segment about corporations, how they celebrate and promote LGBT pride. Somebody left us a comment. As a small business owner, I don't publicize my support for LGBT. For companies that do publicize their support for that community, they can't plow profits into programs for LGBT, elderly, first responders, teachers, African Americans, etc. Well, we always like to hear from you from whatever we're talking about. Please join the conversation. Stay with us for David Epstein. He's going to talk about Range, a new book that lays out a foundation for success as a generalist. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Dabblers, late bloomers, and zigzaggers take heart. All that stuff management coaches and self-help experts say about sharpening your skills for 10,000 hours, that may be one recipe for success, but the numbers are on the side of generalists. Duke Ellington was one. Deep into baseball and painting as a kid, he later wrote this, Sea Jam Blues, and a trove of complex multi-instrumental pieces using his own annotations, not conventional notes. Best-selling author and investigative reporter David Epstein pulled together research and examples of people like Ellington, Roger Federer, J.K. Rowling, and Nobel Prize-winning scientists who illustrate the long-term advantages of breadth of knowledge over depth. Acapella Books is bringing David Epstein to Atlanta to talk about his new book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. He's going to be at Manuel's Tavern tonight at 7. David Epstein, welcome. Thank you for having me. So the story begins, your book begins, with two superstar athletes, Tiger Woods, yeah. Roger Federer. How did they illustrate the difference in this hyper-specialist and more meandering approach? Well, so Tiger Woods, as, as probably most people have sort of absorbed the gist of his story, is the, the hyper-specialization. Father gives him a putter at seven months old. You know, by, by two years old, he's on national television demonstrating his swing. Three years old, his father starts to media train him. Um, you know, and he starts saying, like, I'm going to be the next Jack Nicholas. Fast forward to 21, he's the greatest golfer in the world. 
Roger Federer, clearly just as esteemed as an adult, but played a wide variety of sports as a kid. Um, his mother was a tennis coach, refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. He started picking up wrestling, swimming, volleyball, badminton, soccer, basketball, a little rugby, skateboarding, swimming, a couple others. Um, and even when his coaches wanted to bump him up to a higher level, he declined because he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling with his friends. And uh, he delayed specializing in tennis until years after his peers. And that turns out to be absolutely the norm. If you look at studies of athletes who go on to become elite, they have what scientists call a sampling period, where they play a wide variety of sports. They gain these broad general skills that scaffold later knowledge. They learn about their own interests and abilities and systematically delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. So I use those stories to to sort of serve as an analogy and jumping off point for other domains. So this sampling period is the norm. But we do, do we just hear the Mozart, you know, uh, Tiger Woods stories, the child prodigies, because we like them? That's right. That's right. And they're dramatic. So, in fact, um, the Mozart and Tiger stories, we've actually been telling those a little bit wrong. So we tell them as these sort of father-manufactured stories. But as Tiger said, his father never asked him to play. It was always him asking his father. And Mozart, I went through some old letters about Mozart, and you can see musicians coming over to house and Mozart asking to play with his father and the musicians, and his father saying, like, go away. Nobody's giving you any lessons in violin. And one day he starts crying, and another musician says, well, I'll go play with him in the other room. Next thing you know, they hear the second violin part coming from the other room. And I remember the letter says specifically, little Wolfgang was emboldened by our applause to insist he could also play the first violin. (laughs) So in those two cases, the fathers were actually responding to these incredible and very unusual displays of early interest and prowess. And in fact, the best way to have a chance for that, even though it's incredibly rare, is to have a sampling period and see if something sort of uh, lights the performer's fire. So you don't have to worry about trying to manufacture them because that's that's not the way that those stories happen. And, and it's not even just sports and music, right? Like when Mark Zuckerberg at age 22 says young people are just smarter, that sticks in our mind. The research that just came out from MIT and the Census Bureau that says actually the average age of a founder of a blockbuster tech startup on the day of founding is 45 and a half, you know, that doesn't stick so much. This is why so many people must be gratified by reading your book, who have spent their lives not quite knowing exactly what their specialty is in in this in this era when we have this notion of the necessity of hyper specialization. But a lot of points that you come across in this book, and a lot of people you speak to, talk about where that falls down. Hyper specialization. What's an example of that that we can all relate to? Well, so, for example, let's look at uh, medicine, because I think this is a consequential era where everyone is pushed to be a specialist, right? So we end up with um, doctors and medical scientists working off of what's called surrogate markers, which means now instead of having a view on the entire human organism, they have such a narrow view that they're only looking at, like, one part of the body and tweaking that and assuming that that will get the outcomes they want, you know, when you sort of zoom out. So so there's some very famous blood pressure drugs, for example, that lower blood pressure, and then people die of heart attack and stroke at the exact same rates just with lower blood pressure because mm. we're only focused on these surrogate markers. And this has reached such proportions that some of the studies I cite in range, for example, um, are one that shows you are less, if you have a, have a serious heart problem and are checked into a hospital, 
you are less likely to die if you're checked in on the dates of a national cardiology conference when the, the, the most esteemed specialists are away because you're less likely to get a procedure that they do constantly but that is ineffective and, and dangerous. And so w one of the cardiologists who wrote the editorial accompanying this study said, you know, my colleagues and I used to joke that our conference would be the safest place to have a heart problem. And this study really turns that on its head. That is just chilling in its own way. But this is also, this has been a focus in education that, you know, help a kid find their passion and zero in on it. But you give a lot of examples of how different ways to approach, let's say, mathematics, Japanese math teaching versus American math teaching. Can you help illuminate that for us? Yeah, so uh, American math teaching ends up, you know, e even even when teachers have really good intentions, ends up imparting uh, what cognitive psychologists call using procedures knowledge. Essentially, that's a kind of knowledge where you learn how to how to execute certain algorithms. Essentially, when when you see a certain type of problem, and so the way it works in class is usually you'll give students problem a problem of a certain type. You know, problem type A A A A A. They learn how to execute the procedures. B B B B B. They learn how to execute the procedures, and so on. In a Japanese classroom, they're more focused on what's called making connections knowledge. They also have some using procedures knowledge for sure, but whereas that's the entirety of, of math learning in a lot of American classrooms, the making connections knowledge will often use one problem that, that brings together a large number of different concepts. So if you go into a Japanese classroom, one entire wall will be a blackboard. There'll be one problem for the class. The kids have these name magnets where they can, they stick their name by something they want to try in the problem. The class follows that, and maybe it's a dead end, and they come back and try other approaches. And, and part of the idea is to try all these different approaches, which forces you to start connecting ideas. And the Japanese actually have a word for this kind of writing on the blackboard that, that tracks the intellectual journey ac across the class. It's called bansho. And that kind of teaching, instead of teaching how to execute procedures, it teaches how to match a type of strategy to the structure of the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's the type of skill you need when you're going to face problems you haven't seen before, which of course is where it's actually practically important. Which is almost the opposite of the idea of teaching to the test. In other words, teaching so you'll be successful on a test. And one of the, you have a number of studies because there's a, a whole chapter on education here and more on secondary education. But one of the most fascinating things was this Air Force Academy oh, study of, of particular professors teaching Air Force cadets, I guess it was, calculus. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that study knocked me out for a number of reasons. One, because it was such a unique, like you could never recreate this experiment, you know, just in a lab. So the Air Force Academy gets a freshman class in, you know, hundreds or a thousand students every year, and they all have to take a sequence of three math courses in order, calculus one, calculus two, and then a more advanced class. And they are randomly assigned to professors for Calculus 1, then re-randomized for Calculus 2, and then re-randomized again. So you have this incredible setup to see, like, what is really the influence of different professors. So these researchers who studied it tracked thousands of students and a hundred different professors over a decade. And what they found was that the professors who were the best at... Um, at, at facilitating overachievement in Calculus 1, in their own Calculus 1, so students did better than the characteristics they came in with would suggest, those students then went on to systematically underperform in the follow-on courses. So the professor who was, whose students did the sixth best overall in his Calculus 1, his students ranked him the seventh best overall, you know, on their student evaluations. They then finished dead last in how they performed in, in the next 
um, courses. And it turns out that that's because the way to get the best contemporaneous achievement in your own class is to teach a narrow curriculum full of using procedures knowledge that gives people this, these sort of quick ways to do well on the test, but does not teach them these broader conceptual models that they then need when they're, they're facing new problems um, going forward. And, and this is sort of one of the themes of range, right? It's the ways to get the fastest short-term improvement in front of your eyes often undermines your long-term development. Right. Ease of learning. Getting through something is not necessarily the best way to learn. No. In fact, uh, difficulty is not a sign that you're not learning, but but ease is. Hmm. My guest is David Epstein. He's the author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. But you, okay, so you just talked about one of the big underpinnings of the book, but another is the long-range calculation, how this mm-hmm. plays out over time. And the other that comes across to me is that, of course, people gravitate towards something that they feel successful or competent yeah. at. But how does that lead to a kind of complacency? Yeah, so in, in, in some cases, um, if w- when people are training in something and it, and it feels easy, basically um, they rest in, um, you know, I was talking to the economist Russ Roberts, and he called this a, a, a hammock of cons- competence. I called it a rut, and he said it's a hammock because you get so comfortable. And, and it turns out that basically we just sort of settle into um, comfortable levels of competence, and the way to get off of that is to do something totally different. And and again, not to make too many analogies to physical training, but it's like if you lift the same weights the same number of times every day at the gym, you'll get good at that, and that will become comfortable. But that will not cause your body to physiologically adapt and make changes, which is what you really want. You want adaptation and change because as you do the same thing, your body and your mind reconfigure to make that thing convenient and easier. So you have to be constantly changing what you're doing if you want to have continual improvement. But let, let's look at what this means for the way that we structure our whole education system in the United yeah. States, this idea of, especially for secondary education, that you choose what you want to pursue and then you make your way through yeah. that. One of the things that we find over and over again in the book is that that is not necessarily good. To have this sampling period is much more beneficial. So what does this mean for for, you know, higher education in the U.S.? Yeah, so there was an economist uh, whose work I write about who asks exactly that question, and he, he looks at a natural experiment outside of the U.S., but very relevant, where he sees in, in the higher ed systems in England and Scotland, they're very similar, except in England the students have to specialize, like, in their mid-teen years because they have to pick what, what like, professional course they're going to apply to. And in Scotland, they can keep sampling much longer, like, more like in the U.S. And he wanted to know who wins this trade-off, the earlier late specializers. And what he found was that the early specializers do, in fact, jump out to an income lead because they get more domain-specific skills. But the later specializers sample more and pick better match quality. That's the economist's term for your degree of fit between your interests and abilities and the work you do. So their growth rates when they get into the work world are much faster. So they quickly erase that income gap. And then the early specializers start quitting their career tracks in much higher numbers, even though they have much more disincentive from doing so. So essentially, they were picking so early that they were making more wrong choices. And the return to that sampling period turned out to be higher than the return to getting more domain-specific skills because you pick a better match. Well, fit and match are a big part of the way that we assess progress. How Mm -hmm. does one find one's fit or match? That's a that's a good question, and so and this is where it gets not quite as you know straightforward as do ten thousand hours in the first thing that comes along, and so one of the the 
studies that really resonated with me was this one called the Dark Horse Project that approached that. It was how do people find work that, that they find fulfilling. And the, the reason it's called the Dark Horse Project is because these two Harvard researchers, when they would sort of bring people in for introductory interviews, these people would all say, like, well, don't tell anybody to do what I did because I started in this other thing and I turned out I didn't really like that. And so then I sort of zigzagged and, and you know, left some other thing and finally kind of like created my own job. But so I'm a total, you know, oddball. Mm. And about 90 percent of them would come in and say that, like, don't tell people to do what I did because I, I came out of nowhere. And so they called it the Dark Horse Project because all these people viewed themselves as dark horses. And their common trait was instead of having a focus on their 10 or 20 year plan, which like you can't predict anyway, um, they had a focus on short term planning where instead of looking around and saying, here's who's younger than me and has more than me, they'd say, here are my interests and skills today. Here are the things I want to learn. Here are the opportunities in front of me. I'm going to try this one. And maybe a year from now, I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. And so they go forward with this intention of learning something about themselves from each of their experiences and continually zigzagging until they triangulate good match quality. Well, it's interesting because since I've been talking with people about this book, a lot of them have said, you know, I've always been jealous of people who know from a young age that they know what they want. And and everybody no. thinks of themselves as that, as that dark horse. You know, I didn't quite know. I'm not really the one to follow. Is is this about personality or is, is this about the way that we are steered into finding direction, do you think? Uh, both, I think, actually. So, And an important thing to keep in mind with the personality aspect is, and there's a reason why I quote, you know, the 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 one of the co-founders of Nike saying he feels sorry for people who know what they want to do from the time <laughs> they're, they're sophomores in high school. Um, because something to keep in mind is called the end of history illusion. This is a psychological finding that, that we all realize that we have changed a lot in the past. Our personality traits, our values, our interests, everything based on our experiences. And then we underestimate how much we will change in the future. And we do this at every time point of life. And the fastest time of personality change in your entire life, although it changes throughout your life, is from 18 to your late 20s. And so if people are picking, you know, they may find the right fit if they're, if they're making a solid choice in that period, but, but probably not because they're in the position of trying to choose for a person they don't yet know um, and in a world they can't yet conceive. And so if they make the right choice, it's, it's probably pretty much luck. Is there an ideal age to hyper-focus? It, it's hard to say. So if you look at um, sports, the period of winnowing down, so the sampling period often lasts at least through the early teen years. A lot of times the sampling starts getting like winnowed away in the mid-teen years, like 15, 16. But then if you look at like the German soccer players, who a study of them, who the ones who went on to win the World Cup, they were still doing more outside stuff until they were 22 and more unstructured play. So it's also about unstructured play. In other areas of the world, I don't think there is a perfect time because the work world changes so quickly now and we know our personality changes that I think this quest for match quality is is more of a lifelong quest than ever, actually. take a quick break and be back with David Epstein, author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. He's going to be at Manuel's Tavern tonight speaking about the book. And we'll leave you on this little break with Django Reinhardt, one of the musicians that he highlights as a, let's say, zigzagger, dabbler, who really found his way. We'll be back with more of On Second Thought.
I'm Virginia Prescott, and we're back with On Second Thought and my guest, David Epstein. He's in Atlanta tonight to talk about his new book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. He is a man of broad knowledge himself. He studied astronomy and geology as an undergrad before becoming the youngest senior writer for Sports Illustrated and going on to write the best-selling book, The Sports Gene. And that book set him on the path to range which defies that pick-a-skill-and-drill-down kind of philosophy which has predominated conventional thinking and, by the way, sold a lot of books. He's talked to a number of experts and gathered a bunch of research on the underestimated, overlooked approach of people with broad and not-so-specialized knowledge, especially in the information age. Well, tell us a little bit about that. How did you go from this, the sports gene and your famous debates with Malcolm Gladwell? <laughs> Right. So after the sports gene, whereas, as Malcolm would say, he had to introduce me at a panel recently. And he said, this is David Epstein, who devoted several pages of his first book to attacking my work. <laughs> um, and so the first time we met was um, in 2014 at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, founded by the general manager of the Houston Rockets. And we were asked to debate um, athletic development. And this is on YouTube, 10,000 hours versus the sports gene. And in trying to anticipate what he was going to uh, argue you know, I knew he had to argue for early specialization of athletes. And so I went and looked at, you know, I was a science writer at Sports Illustrated. I went and looked at all the data and saw that, in fact, everywhere scientists look pretty much in almost every sport, athletes have this so-called sampling period where they gain a, a breadth of general skills. They learn about their interests and abilities and systematically delay specializing until later than their peers. And when we came off stage, he sort of said, you know, we, what you got me on was 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 that thing. Um, and we became running buddies after that. Talk about it on our own time. And I sort of filed it away in my head, and then maybe almost two years later, I was invited to talk to people who had been given scholarships by the Pat Tillman Foundation, military veterans, to aid career changing. And I talked about late specialization a little bit, and it was they were so enthusiastic about it that that, that conversation with Malcolm came back to my head, and I sort of thought you know, maybe sports is just the analogy for the wider work world here. Ah, so you started looking at a lot of different bits of research about how nimble minds work with a breadth of experience, and that was well, maybe it was well suited for industrial jobs and economy to be super yeah. drilled down. And there's an yeah. example here of a study in Soviet Kyrgyzstan. This is by a researcher named Alexander Luria of yeah. villages completely untouched or relatively untouched by the progress that was going on in the world around them. What did that reveal about specialization? Yeah, so Luria used the, the socialist revolution as, as this natural experiment where he could go to areas that had been sort of brought into modern work where they had to do collective farming and, and people started having to have these more managerial jobs instead of just their normal hands-on jobs, whereas other um, of these remote farmers were still very much in in this concrete style of life where they had to live like by their own hands. And what he found was that the more modern work that an individual had been exposed to, the higher their capacity for abstract thought, essentially. And so say you'd give shapes like to some of these the the what he called the pre-modern farmers you give them a square with a solid line a square with a dotted line and, and a bunch of other shapes and you ask which go together they would never pair those two squares together because they would say for example one villager named alieva would say well one is um a map and the other one is a watch of course right they'd see no commonality whereas the people who'd been exposed to modernity who need to do some abstract thought because they need to transfer knowledge across domains and think about people working who are not themselves, um, even if they didn't know the names of the shapes, they could do grouping like that. And what's really interesting about it is 
we the more that we've had to do self-directed problem solving in modern work, the the better we've gotten at abstract thought, and that's shown up in these IQ tests. This is what's called the Flynn effect. If you look at abstract IQ tests, there's a rise of about three points per decade over the 20th century, and specifically on the most abstract tests, the ones that were supposed to change the least because they have nothing to do with the stuff you learn in school. Hmm. And so our adaptation to modern work has led us to have these these broader thinking uh, strategies that allow us to move our knowledge between jobs and domains, which which makes us sort of uniquely flexible. So yeah, flexibility is the key here, that if you, you talked about the hammock of competency or the rut, what I read from this book is that many people tend to decorate their ruts, you know, so they're staying in, they're, they're moving in there for a while and, yeah. and holding their place there. What does that mean for our culture at large, you know, this idea of the siloization of knowledge? One of the scientists you speak to calls it the system of parallel trenches. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's so that I love that that was Arturo Casadevall, who's you know one of the most prominent scientists in the world, who's trying to despecialize the training of scientists. We have this thing called the replication crisis right now, where like a huge amount of famous science is turning out not to be true, and that's in in part because um, scientists get into these very specialized tracks before they've even learned how to do scientific thinking. And by the way, I explain this in range because I have a master's degree in environmental science. And I did the same thing, so I now realize I have published research that is almost certainly false. Huh, because, because you were just... as an investigative journalist reporting about how poor science is done that I say, like, wait a minute, this is very familiar. Huh. You know, I did this. So I have a master's degree that I'm quite sure is based on um, research that isn't true, unfortunately. O- outside of science, I mean, so so an example of a disaster, right, where, where there's siloization. So an SEC regulator when he found out I was writing about specialization, actually contacted me to make sure I knew that it had these interesting roles in the financial crisis. One of those was, in the wake of the crisis, the government, to try to keep people in their homes, um, started these programs where they would say, to a, if, the, if the people met certain qualifications like they were employed, the government would reach out to the bank and say, let this person keep their home, lower, lower their mortgage rate, and we'll pay you part of the difference that they're not paying. And so you won't get you know as much as you would have otherwise, but you need you want something right and so this agreement is made and so these banks then start one arm of the bank that deals with the mortgages then starts lowering those individuals payments right and so the the individuals start paying less another arm of the same bank realizes that those people are now paying less and forecloses on their home and so this this program that was meant to keep people in their homes perversely got them out of them more quickly because the banks were so siloed that they had no idea what one or another were doing. It leads to these perverse results when nobody is keeping an eye on the big picture. Right. So you can have a lot of information, but it's not circulated from one side to the next. And it can get worse over time. And you illustrate this with a series of decisions made about launching the space shuttle, the space shuttle Challenger, yeah. which did blow up. I mean, these are very smart engineers, a yeah. lot of protocols what went wrong yeah so the challenger in the columbia after that th- those those disasters were such cultural carbon copies that the investigation board of columbia said that Le- nasa is not a learning organization because they had repeated the same mistake and and to make a long story short what nasa did was they had gotten so entrenched in these certain types of procedures um, that required very specific types of quantitative arguments, which had worked beautifully in many cases. But then the night before Challenger, they're going to have these unusually cool temperatures, and they get into this situation they haven't experienced before. And one of the engineers from the rocket booster contractor, Morton Thiokol, is saying, look, 
We don't have the data to say what's going to happen, but here are these photographs that I've taken that I think tell a story about how these O-rings that seal joints in the boosters are going to fail as it gets cooler. And they kept asking him, well, quantify it. Like, what's the data? How can you quantify it? He says, I can't. I'm telling you, these pictures tell a story. We don't have data. We have to use reason. And because they had such a formal quantitative culture, which in many ways had served them very well, they basically refused to accept any other kind of evidence and, and struck that evidence from the record. And that's exactly what happened the next day. And so their inflexibility from deviating from their normal procedures, even in a an instance that clearly deviated from their experience, uh, led to tragedy twice. Are there cases, however, when that hyper-specialization is really helpful? I mean, you know, you Absolutely. make the point that chess champs, uh, for example, they're they're relying on old patterns in their head. Absolutely. But wh- what are some other places where that kind of level of drilling down is beneficial? And I should say, so the chess, chess grandmasters, their advantage is pattern recognition, but that's also what makes that task so easy to automate. Because uh, uh, that's why, that's why Watson knows how to play chess so well. Right. So that, that's why, as one of the oncologists told me, is, you know, there's a reason why Watson destroyed at Jeopardy and has been like a, you know, a disaster in cancer research because we already know the answers to Jeopardy. And this gets to this, this framework that I set up early in range that the psychologist Robin Hogarth called kind versus wicked learning environments. Kind learning environments are these ones that are based on pattern recognition and where all the information is clear and next steps are clear. And those are areas where it does make a lot of sense to specialize. They're also areas that tend to be easier to automate. The wicked learning environments are where you're, not, you're maybe not even sure where you should go next and some of the information is hidden and you may not always get perfectly accurate feedback. And those are the cases where where breadth of knowledge, um, you know, really, like, galvanizes achievement. And the more uncertain the area gets, the more important those people with breadth are. My guest is David Epstein. His new book, Range, champions the generalists. You are not by any means casting judgment on people who are specialists. But your book has already been highlighted and picked up by a number of management and productivity and, you know, do-your-job-better kind of sites and podcasts. But you also mentioned the personal advantages. So what beyond career advancement are upsides for, for generalist humans? There's a quote that stuck with me from the work of someone named Herminia Ibarra, who studies how people find work that fits them well and then change that over the course of their career as they change and as the world changes. And she has this quote that we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means is that there are all these career gurus and like personality quiz, industrial complex or whatever that that suggests to you that you can just introspect and learn who you are, that there's a true self of you just waiting to be fulfilled. Hmm. But in fact, that's contradicted by a ton of research that suggests our insight into ourselves is constrained by our roster of experiences. And that the only way to get that insight that helps you match well is by doing stuff and then reflecting, by acting and then thinking instead of the reverse. And and so that's how you triangulate a better fit. And it turns out that when people do that, it's not that they set out to become a generalist, a lot of the people in the book. It's that they're searching out good match quality and that they realize that since they've sort of traversed these different areas, they can take knowledge that was ordinary in one domain and then apply it in this other place where it's extraordinary, which is exactly... By the way, what happened to me, I was living in a tent in the Arctic when I decided to become a writer for sure. Really? Not realizing my very ordinary science skills would be totally extraordinary at a sports magazine. Well, tell me about that transition for you. I mean, that that's part of the thing about changing one's career when you've been going down a certain path. There's, there's difficulty. There's mm-hmm. vulnerability. Mm-hmm. How do you explore that? 
Yeah, and 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 again, to go to Hermine Ibarra's work, she talks about working identity, and I think the reason that's an important phrase to keep in mind is because I think sometimes we have this idea of just sort of taking a flying leap, you know, and that's you either do that or, or you don't. But in fact, our work is part of our identity, in some cases a very important part of our identity, and identity does not change overnight. And so the successful changers, she finds, do this sort of... Um, escalating experimentation where this for somehow they'll get a keyhole view into some new interest or new area and they'll then maybe they'll take a class or talk to a couple more people or explore it a little bit more and then it becomes this sort of widening passion until they get to the point where they say like i actually have to make a change while their friends are all telling them no no no, just keep it as a hobby you don't want to get behind Hmm. Um, and so it's this slow process because it involves identity change and and as she finds it necessarily involves this period where you have a foot in each world that is very unsettling, no matter how well it works out. How have you done that? How do you dabble or put one little foot into the other, another world? Yeah, so I actually keep, so when I was a competitive runner in college, I used to keep a, a goal book, right? So here's my training, here's my running goal, very black and white. And I transitioned that to my professional life and found it actually doesn't work well at all because goals in the wider world are not like measured on a stopwatch as easily as that. Um, and so now I keep something more like when I was a grad student that I call my book of experiments, where I'll, I'll almost have a hypothesis of what do I want to learn? What interests do I want to explore? You know, what do I think I might be good at? And then I'll find a way to engage that and come back and see, okay, what was unexpected about what I liked about that or what I contributed or, or, or how much I didn't like it? And I just I do that constantly, and it forces me to do a lot of reflection, which is which is one of the hallmarks of so-called self-regulatory learners, who are people who... One, they get off of learning plateaus because they're constantly reflecting on their own learning, and they also end up assessing their own strengths and weaknesses like much more uh, similarly to how their their bosses and uh, and outside people do. You're making me think of uh, of finding the right fit in a job and acting your way into it a little bit like you know finding a mate. There's this idea that there's the one person that's out yeah, there that you've totally. got to figure out right now. How how do they compare for you? No, I mean, completely. I think if, if we thought of careers the way we thought of dating, we would never pressure people to settle down so quickly, right? Mm. Because just as for some people, very early specialization works out. For some people, marrying their high school sweetheart m- may well work out. But for most people, as they gain more understanding of themselves and of the world, and they essentially, you know, take data by, by dating, um, having married their high school sweetheart looks like m- maybe it was not such a good idea in retrospect. And and. The way mathematicians have modeled optimal dating, essentially, is quite similar to some of the models of of optimal search for work match quality. All right. So how do we do this? How do we continue to dabble? Any ideas or experiences that you would recommend? You know, take a class, take up a sport, hobby? Personally, I would start this your own little book of experiments because that will force you to be having the experiments in the first place and reflecting. In the writing of this book, I got stuck with some of the structuring. Like, there's a lot of information I was having trouble organizing. So to kind of get out of my rut, I took an online fiction writing class for beginners. And in that class, like, nothing I've done before matters. You know, having the best-selling book before doesn't matter at all. Back to the beginning. And one of the exercises is writing with no dialogue. Suddenly I go back through the whole manuscript of range and start stripping tons of quotes, realizing I had just been... Uh, reflexively relying on quotes to do explanation that I should have done more clearly in writing. And now I'm, I'm even more committed to, 
you know, not having to come to a crisis point to, to keep doing those experiments, but making sure I'm getting a little uncomfortable more regularly. Well, David Epstein, we learned from your book that even Julius Caesar looked at his life in, in the shadow <laughs> of Alexander the Great statue and thought, oh, I've been a failure. I've done nothing. I mean, a lot of people are anxious about not quite settling into the right fit. So what would you tell them? The single best advice I could give based on all this research is don't feel behind and focus on the opportunities and the things you want to learn right in front of you. You don't, you don't even know who you're going to be. Again, end of history illusion. We all underestimate how much we will change. You certainly don't know what the world's going to be. So it's no use making these, you know, ironclad 10 and 20 year plans. This is what the, the investor Paul Graham calls, says in computer science, we call that premature optimization <laughs> because you're making a goal before you really like know what you should be doing or what the area you're working in is like. So just work forward from promising opportunities instead of worrying about that long term plan. Um, and I think that that proves to be a much more effective habit of mind in searching out your, your best fit. Well, the nimble minded David Epstein, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. David is the author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, and he will be at Manuel's Tavern tonight at 7. Acapella Brooks is bringing him there. You can find details at gpbnews.org. And although we focused on a lot of scientists and people in the professional world, he also highlights Paul Gauguin and Vincent van Gogh and, of course, Duke Ellington, who was a generalist himself. We're listening to his portrait of Wellman Bro. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and The Raven Taylor. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer, mixing today thanks to Bram Sable-Smith. Our interns are Allison Krausman and Jake Troyer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for joining us today for On Second Thought.